From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Earlier this year, our former producer, Cass Adair, left With Good Reason to work on an exciting new project. Today, we're thrilled to share part of the pilot from his groundbreaking new podcast, Transcripts. It pops in my head. It was a clip of Nina Simone sitting at a table. She said, I've never felt liberation, but in this moment, I'm around other Black people. I feel liberated. That's Lasaya Way. She's talking to oral historian Merle Bean in fall 2019, and she's talking about freedom. It's always going to be a bill that needs to be paid. It's always going to be a water bill that's being turned off. It's always going to be a car note that you missed. It's always going to be that particular stress. But I feel liberated when I'm around other Black people. I feel liberated when I'm around other trans people. From the Treader Transgender Oral History Project, this is Transcripts a new podcast series about how trans activists are changing the world. Now there are like, some incredible uh, trans women of color activists up here with me. Yes, it's here for them. The state of transness in America, the state of blackness in America, the state of sexuality in America. Everything that I care about, housing, discrimination, education. And that, that is the work. That is the work that I'm so honored to stand here and lift up for you today. My name is Andrea Jenkins. And I'm Merle Beam. I'm the one who spoke with Lasaya and all the other voices you'll hear in this episode. I work on an oral history project where I collect stories of trans activists from all over the U.S. I actually started that oral history project back in 2015. I wanted to hear the stories of trans people in their own words and preserve those stories for other people to learn from. And I'm so glad you did, because the stories are amazing. And those stories are especially important right now, because so many trans people are dreaming of a new world. One without gender discrimination or racism or economic injustice. We've been asking folks, what are the tools you're using to make change? Who's leading the struggle? And how in the world are people getting enough money to live and do all of this work? So in this pilot episode, we're going to tackle a question that sounds simple, but is actually really big. Is life actually getting better for trans people? So when I interviewed Lasaya, I asked her, what about the fact that things seem to be getting better for some people? At the same time, we have this visibility. There's also been more Black trans women killed last year than I think ever in my lifetime. How do you explain that? What do you think is going on? We allowed our enemies to know where we're at. We have allowed our enemies to know where we're at. This answer was so compelling that I wanted to back up and learn more. How did we arrive at a place where some trans people, especially white trans folks, people like me, think of things as getting better, but life is actually getting a lot more dangerous for Black trans women like Lasaya? To answer that question, we talk to so many different people, and we want you to hear their stories directly from them. You'll hear folks describing the barriers that they face, but you'll also hear what they are doing to change things. That decision to try to change things, to devote your life to a larger struggle, it isn't always an easy choice. Activism wasn't exactly Lasaya's plan A. I was director of communications in Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, at Bell South when it was slowly switching over to AT&T. For the price, plus digital satellite TV with more HD channels than cable, all for under $99 a month. Bell South, call today. Good job after I graduated college. I'm like, ooh, I nailed one. She wasn't out as trans at work. As a trans 
feminine person, it's easier to live as a stealth person and especially trying to live a healthy life or also live a wealthy life. And what I mean by wealthy is going to school, getting a thriving job, not just a surviving job, but a thriving job, a good career. But about a year into the job, she rolled into work after she had been out the night before at the club. You know, I'm still young. I'm still vibrations. I wanted to have fun. So I came back to work that following Monday with my stuff on my desk packed up. One of Lasaya's cis gay co-workers had seen her at the club, and from there he figured out she was trans. Then he outed her to the rest of the office. The co-worker that wanted my job told my boss at that time that I was a trans person. And it was multiple layers to that, right? I was a Black person in a high position at a company that that is not really known for a Black person to be that high in a position that I was in. And also, I was a trans person. And then they fired me for non-disclosure of my transness. She was in Tennessee, where there aren't many protections for workers. They fire you because your hair is purple and they don't like the color of your hair. So in the moments, I was depressed. I'm like, what am I going to do? How dare they treat me this way? Then I was just like, how can I take my language and my education and take it to the next level for communities? My community that is not seen. So I joined Black Lives Matter. And then ever since then, I took off. And that transformation from being fired to becoming an activist, that's a familiar story for the trans folks we spoke with. I'm just literally coming to work, doing my job, and I don't know if I'm going to be fired or not. That's Diamond Styles. By the time she was fired from her job, her life was already shaped by racism and discrimination. My mother had been caught up in the Brazil industrial complex. As a Black woman, she was one of those super predators. Super predator refers to a now discredited theory from the 1990s. The idea that some people were just naturally violent and lacked empathy. Most of those so-called super predators were Black. The concept was made popular to the nation by the Clinton administration. They used that terminology in campaigns, ultimately passing a racist, tough-on-crime bill in 1994. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. And the president has asked... That fake science was part of a trend of mass incarceration of Black and brown people. People like Diamond's mom. And so she got caught up in that, and I got custody of my brother. And so I'm at home, a single trans woman with an 11-year-old. As a Black trans woman, Diamond knew she had even more stacked against her. I work for um, Healer Packard, and when my transness came out, one of my family members worked there, like a distant cousin, and she told people that I was trans. Her co-workers started harassing her. One of the supervisors lost their keys, and they gave me the keys to give it to the supervisor so they can take pictures of us interacting with each other and make fun of him. I didn't have any political recourse. I didn't have any legal recourse because of the state that I lived in. We didn't have the protection for trans people. And so I I was forced into um, survival sex work at the time, and... You know, it just changed the trajectory of my life. Sex work is something that some trans women do to make money. But it wasn't that Diamond wanted to. She felt isolated. But then she found something that changed her life. YouTube. Hey, what's up? This is your girl, Diamond Styles. Hey, what's up? This is your girl, Diamond. How are you? Now, some of you may know me. And I wasn't trying to be an activist, but because of those situations and because of technology, I started to be a YouTuber. They see your personality, your smile, (laughs) all that good stuff. They see all of that. That's what they are attracted to. And because I was a little bit older in my transition, I was 26 at the time, but I had been living my truth since 
13, 14. And so because I had already physically transitioned years ago, my narratives were about just relationships and stories. You have to create your own ideals of beauty. You. And seek to it. Because if you have your own ideals of beauty and your own ideals of where you should be and what you should look like, nobody can come around and smack it out of your head. <laughs> Got like 4.5 million views and it just, it just grew from that. I felt like every time they talked to trans people, all they had to talk about was the bathroom issue. I care about things more than the bathroom issue. So I was like... People started to say I was an activist and I really wasn't for sure if that had fit because at the time I was still in sex work. I was doing all the non-respectable stuff. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not no activist. That's for the goody two shoes. <laughs> That's for the goody two shoes. That's not me. But the more Diamond worked in activism, the more she realized it actually was her. And so... What this last five years has taught me in being in this work is that you have the power to build community to keep you safe. You have the power to build community to give you the support that you need so you can do the things you want to do, give you the power to change your own trajectory in your life. You want to be that structure for somebody else, and you want the people in your life to be that structure for you. But what does that change look like? When I asked her how things had changed in the last few decades, Lasaya had a pretty frank answer. It's a lot of assimilating politics. And what I mean by assimilating politics is, as a Black revolutionary, as a Black person that deals with Black politics and Black power and Black liberation, we think that if we want to be a part of society, we're still using our master's tools to be a part of society that deem us not normal. A lot of trans people have this idea that if we get more visibility, we'll do better. And some of that has worked for people like me. But we heard very different stories from the folks working on the front lines of Black and trans people of color-led movements. You have to understand that visibility does not change the heart and minds of the people. If I'm still in Texas or Indiana and I'm getting fired and I don't have the legal recourse to protect myself against workforce discrimination. It doesn't matter if everybody's seen this on the TV. When I was homeless, I couldn't go to the cisgender women's shelter because they're uncomfortable and whatever rules that they have. I couldn't go to the male shelter because that's a liability for them. Like they literally asked me on the phone, can you take your breast off? <laughs> on the phone, well, if you can't take them off, then you can't come here. Went to the LGBT, LGBT, <laughs> went to them and they said, well, our funding only covers people with HIV. Now, because of the work that we've done, the LGBT one now is open for all. But in the time that I needed it, the normal social safety nets that a cis person could go to, I didn't have access to them and they weren't safe places for me. I've heard countless stories about like a trans training happening in a police department and then the police in that department more easily identifying trans people to harass. That's Dean Spade, founder of the Silvio Rivera Law Project in New York, an organization that offers legal support to trans and gender nonconforming people. He argues that queer and trans visibility can cover up the fact that inequality is still growing. Civil rights legislation doesn't, doesn't really work to resolve systemic harm against hated groups. It hasn't for any of the hated groups that are um, supposedly covered. Conditions continue to worsen for all of those groups. In other words, marriage equality and anti-discrimination laws may make it seem like things are better for LGBT people, but they don't make poor people less poor or get prisoners out of prison. So for Dean, that means that just changing laws isn't the answer. If resources are still being hoarded by some people, then the rest of us are less free, no matter what the law says. Even though the connection and community that Diamond has created through her media presence is incredibly valuable, Diamond pretty much agrees. Those key bottom line factors to be able to eat, sleep, and chase your dreams, those are the changes that can keep trans women off the streets, in housing, in good health care, not just visibility. Still, Diamond Styles has hoped that legal protections and anti-discrimination laws 
can improve the lives of people like her. You get people who are in the trenches and in those back rooms who are putting policies to work that protect us and are not creating this perpetual cycle where we don't have the care. But Lasaya Wade, the former Bell South employee, she says trans people need to work outside the system. I want to see more of us building our own power instead of trying to be a part of their power. Assimilation ain't gonna do nothing but try to disempower the trans community in a way of, oh, now we're part of society. We need to forget about the movement. And also that's a white lens. We need to realize assimilation is not healthy or good for the Black body, period. It never was. It means death. So... What does it look like for us to build our own system? What does it look like for us to build our own power? What does it look like for us to build our own methods of funds that we tunnel back into our own community? What does it look like to build that power ourselves? To find out, we spoke with Gabriel Foster. After I dropped out of high school, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing but I just dove in and I said yes to everything. That say yes to everything attitude meant that Gabriel was already a pretty seasoned activist by the time he grew up and moved to New York City. But one day he was out in the middle of a protest when he literally ran into someone who attained his whole world view. at the Trans Day of Action March and Rally, which happens every year where like trans and non-binary folks and allies and queer folks and lots of different people fill the streets of New York. What do we want? Trans Sunday! When do we want it? Now! What do we want? Trans Sunday! When do we want it? Now! And this woman named Karen Pittleman, she's trying to talk to me while we're like marching. We're really angry. We're carrying these signs around and like... There's a lot of feelings, and she's, like, asking me, she's like, I have an idea. And I was like, what? <laughs> she, she's, like, really trying to have this conversation with me, and I'm like, what? I can't, you know, I couldn't, like, give her my full attention. No justice, no peace, no transphobic And she's like, I just want to, just want to, like, put money into a paper bag, and I want to drive around the country in a van and give it to trans communities so they get the money more directly. And I was like don't have any idea what you're talking about. I had never heard of anyone in my whole life talk about, like, just giving trans people money. So that was Gabriel's first meeting with Karen Pittleman. Karen Pittleman's a writer and poet and the lead singer of a queer country band, Karen and the Sorrows. She's also part of a movement of people working to give away their inherited wealth. And although Karen isn't trans herself, she recognized that trans people were on the front lines of social justice struggles, struggles that she wanted to support. So eventually, Gabriel and Karen did have another conversation, this time not in the middle of a march. You know, I had no uh, background in philanthropy. I think I, I didn't even know what that word meant for a long time. But she was like, you've worked with a lot of communities and you know folks kind of like around the country. And then she brought her, she brought her checkbook, but she also brought a lot of time and dedication and worked for, I don't know, 60 to 80 hours a week for at least three years. And that's how the Trans Justice Funding Project was born. And man, I am so proud that I was able to work with Gabriel and Karen because the idea sparked something that would end up supporting hundreds and thousands of trans people and organizations. And now we are moving into our eighth year. The first year we made grants, we were able to raise a little over $55,000. $55,000 wouldn't be a lot of money for big LGBT rights organizations. It's a tiny fraction of the budget for a big mainstream organization like the Human Rights Campaign. 
you know, the organization that gave out all those little yellow and blue equal sign stickers. But for trans organizations, that's a lot of money. And today, the Trans Justice Funding Project has funded hundreds of small budget trans-led community groups, the kind of groups that provide care and support for trans migrants, trans youth, indigenous trans people, undocumented trans people, trans veterans, trans people of color, just really all sorts of transgender identified people. Trans groups in Alabama and Texas and Montana and South Carolina have all gotten funding too. It's a big, coordinated mutual aid project where money goes to those most in need outside of the big nonprofits. And what's so beautiful is that it is trans people who choose who to give that money away to. We use community like folks who are actually doing this work every day as the experts who know what's best and allow them, give them the power to make decisions around where money should go. As staff, I have no say about where where the money goes, which is not easy, but like that's our that's our politic. Like that's us practicing that politic about it being fully community led. And unlike most grant-making organizations, the Trans Justice Funding Project doesn't just give money to organizations with official nonprofit status. We know some of the most radical and critical and amazing work doesn't happen in offices and doesn't happen because the government says it should happen. <laughs> like people will do a lot of work at kitchen tables and community centers and parks or wherever they can meet. And it doesn't have to be validated by the government to matter. In the absence of social services and support from the mainstream movement, trans people of color are keeping each other safe and are doing the work. Today, Diamond Styles is the executive director of Black Trans Women, Inc. And she builds her work around foundational Black feminist principles. Black feminists have already laid out foundations like this. Black women have never had a vision of liberation that didn't include everybody. If you built your policy around caring for me, regardless of what I got going on, out of all the things, out of all the um, labels, trans, Black, woman, um, if I was disabled, um, if I was positive, if you revolved around caring about my humanity, regardless of the label, it just pulls everybody up. Pulling everybody up. It's a big task. And we don't know if we'll live to see the end of things like incarceration or policing. But we can see glimpses of liberation already in the work that trans people are doing right now. Like in Lasaya Wade's new job. After she was fired from Bell South, Lasaya began organizing a direct action protest group in Chicago called the Transgender Liberation Collective, TLC. It was a complete blackout. No one wanted to say anything. Everyone refused to say anything. And I was angry. I was angry. I was livid. Like, you say you want liberation, but you exclude trans people from that liberation because you're not talking about everyone's liberation. You're talking about your liberation and what your liberation looks like. That's not what liberation is. Lasaya was angry because Black trans women in Chicago were being murdered. She was angry because no one was doing anything about it. Not the city and not the big, white, gay and lesbian organizations either. So TLC said, F*** this. We need to sit out and do something. They put together a march to call attention to the murders of Black trans women in the city. I'm getting chills right now because the Midwest showed up and showed out in Chicago. We had over 2,000 people in downtown Chicago, below zero degree weather, marching for trans people. And that's where BSA was created. That's when we knew that BSA needed to be in Chicago. The BSA, the Brave Space Alliance, that's Lasaya's job now, running her own activism organization in Chicago. There it was, Brave Space Alliance. 
And then we started building. Today, the Brave Space Alliance is a Black-led, trans-led, LGBTQ center located on Chicago's South Side. It holds events and support groups, helps people find jobs and get training, and even runs a free produce program. During the first few weeks of the COVID-19 crisis, the Brave Space Alliance delivered bags of food to over 1,000 households and gave out over $40,000 in direct mutual aid through the Trans Relief Fund. And through all of this work, Lesaya brings a clear vision of the future. To center trans people through the leadership of Black and Brown trans people, and then everyone else can come and join the liberation. It's worth saying again, that's a really different strategy than the mainstream LGBT movements have used. Those movements, mostly led by white, wealthier people, are built on the idea of finding LGBT people who are most like other people in power, except for this one difference. But what Black Trans Women, Inc. and Brave Space Alliance are doing, centering the most marginalized in your activism, it isn't just theory. It's happening now. And it's already changing the world around us. So these days, Lasaya isn't angry anymore. A lot of people look at me like, why are you smiling? Ain't you supposed to be angry, but I'm next to you. Why do I need to be angry? Why do I need to be sad about it? I need to figure out this particular type of joy that I'm feeling in this particular moment because I'm standing beside someone that I probably would never been able to stand beside. Because in this particular madness, I'm connecting to you. This has been part of the pilot from the groundbreaking new podcast, Transcripts. The lead producer of Transcripts is Kasia Sadir. Merle Beam is the senior project scholar and producer. Rachel Matson is the managing producer. Myra Billen-Fibbs is the production assistant. Sound design is by Ariana Martinez. Musical direction by Casper. You heard music by Juniper Gray and Carl X. For more about transcripts, go to bit.ly slash transcriptspod. The Transcripts Podcast is a project of the Treader Transgender Oral History Project, based at the University of Minnesota Libraries. Funding came from the Tawani Foundation and the Minnesota Humanities Innovation Lab. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Hate crimes against LGBTQ plus people in America are on the rise, and victims often don't feel safe getting help afterward. Eli Costin is a sociologist at Virginia Commonwealth University who studies anti-LGBTQ plus hate crimes. They got interested in the subject while doing research in New York City. There had been a series of hate crimes that occurred in the West Village in New York City, and the last one culminated in the murder of Mark Carson, who was a gay man. And the West Village is the gay spot in New York City. It has the gay bars, all the restaurants, there are gay flags everywhere. How does this happen in a place like New York City, in the gay district, in what's supposed to be one of the most gay-friendly places in the country? And I had to know more about why. How old were you when this happened? I think I was about 27 when this happened. Was it the first time you were actually afraid to be out in public? Was it the first time you realized it could happen to me? No. Actually, the first time I realized it could happen to me was when I was in a shopping mall when I was 16 years old. Somebody looked across the escalator. They were going down. I was going up. And they yelled a homophobic slur at me and ran down the escalator. And I ran up and I hid. I was terrified. I didn't know what that person would do to me if they found me. And it was 
just my physical presence. I wasn't holding hands with anyone, wasn't kissing anyone. I just looked a particular way that this person inferred that I was gay. Do you think it changed your behavior after that? No, not mine. I think it changes many people's behavior, though. A lot of people go back into the closet. A lot of people decide that when they're out in public, they won't hold hands, that they won't kiss their partner. You know, they live their public lives as friends and their private lives as partners. Having to hide that is horrible. People shouldn't have to hide their relationships. It wasn't long after this murder and the string of hate crimes in New York City that you became involved with an anti-hate crime task force in New York. Yes. So the New York City Anti-Violence Project, one of the things that we were trying to do was get curriculum instituted in the New York City public schools, anti-bullying curriculum, because most offenders of hate crimes are younger. They're thrill-seeking. They happen to see somebody kissing or holding hands and tell one of their friends, oh, hey, let's go mess with those people. It's not that people are going out intending, I'm going to go commit a hate crime today, which kind of makes it even scarier. Did you all have much success trying to get this sort of curriculum, anti-bullying in the New York schools? We weren't actually successful while I was there, but subsequently that actually has been implemented. So um, I'm very happy for that. I know that I've talked to state legislators here about trying to get similar legislation passed in Virginia so that it would be a requirement in schools. That requires also teaching about LGBT people to school-aged children, and there's some resistance to that, unfortunately. Still in Virginia. Still in Virginia. It must have been so interesting to come from a state that had been more progressive on this issue to come to a state without. Yeah, it has been interesting. For example, there is not hate crimes legislation that covers sexual orientation in Virginia. And there is in New York? There is in New York. Does that make a difference whether a state has anti-hate crime legislation? It doesn't actually make a difference in the rates of victimization. But it does send an important message to people that this is where our values lie, that LGBT people are worthy of dignity, that they're worthy of respect, that they're worthy of the same rights as everyone else. Types of legislation like same-sex marriage passing actually decreased rates of hate crime victimization because LGBT people were seen as equals. That's interesting. So now nationally, with same-sex marriage legislation across the board, are we seeing a reduction in hate crimes? Well, that's a complicated question, actually. There's been a slight increase in hate crimes since about 2012. And so that's disturbing. But when we look at the implementation of same-sex marriage, when same-sex marriage was implemented in various states at different times, it reduced the rates of anti-LGBT hate crimes in those states. Again, this idea that saying LGBT people are equal, they have rights, they are valuable, it humanizes people, and it means that people are less likely to target and victimize them. What are you working on now with anti-violence in this regard? Well, I think one of the biggest problems is actually that people aren't seeking help after they're victimized. Less than half of people go to the police after a hate crime because they're afraid of being re-victimized. They're afraid of being outed. They're afraid that the police will treat them poorly. There's also a real problem with lack of follow-up care. Hate crimes take a toll physically. They're often more violent than non-biased crimes. And only about 15% of victims seek medical care post-victimization. Because again, they're afraid of experiencing homophobia or transphobia from medical providers. Are there a lot of people who are out and out to their friends and out in their lifestyle, but not out to, let's say, talking to a police officer or talking to a medical health professional, etc.? Absolutely. And there are large numbers of LGBT people who are not out to even their primary care physicians. Many people don't tell their doctors. Many doctors also aren't asking. That's also a problem because this is critical information needed to treat a person. Trans people often 
if they go to the doctor for something else, will not tell the doctor that they're trans because then everything comes back to the fact that they're trans. What do you mean everything comes back that they're trans? Um, So there's this phrase called trans broken arm syndrome. And essentially, if you are trans and you go to the doctor with a broken arm, they're going to somehow relate it to the fact that you're transgender, not the fact that you had an accident and broke your arm. It comes from lack of knowledge, quite frankly. Um, It's the same type of, you know, stigma that overweight people face when they go to the doctor, right? Every health concern is linked back to their weight. Is there training for medical professionals that is going on in medical schools and other areas? There are trainings that go on in medical schools and in nursing schools, but the number of hours is relatively limited. Nationally, the average hours of cultural competency training for medical school students is eight hours, and that's covering all types of diversity. So race, gender, LGBT issues, and that's simply not enough. What about police encounters? Are police trained in this regard? There are often trainings for officers in LGBT competencies. For example, in Richmond, there is an LGBT police liaison, police cadets, also meet with a panel of LGBT people. But I think that's only about an hour. And so, again, how deep are you really going? How much are you really understanding? What is the danger of police not really being educated in this field? Well, one of the big things people face is that in New York City, for example, I often heard trans people being stopped by police. And then if their ID wasn't updated, the police officers wouldn't use their preferred name. They would use their legal name, which can be very damaging to a person. And the way that people are searched Trans women should not be frisked in the same way by a male police officer that a man would be. Nobody calls a female officer for a trans woman to be frisked. A male officer just does it himself. These are important areas where we could be treating people with more dignity. What also about dealing with crimes against trans people and the relationship they have with police in that regard? Well, this is one of the reasons people primarily don't report is because especially trans people have so many negative interactions with the police already. Going to the police is probably not going to help you. Almost a quarter of reports in New York City, when people said they went to try to file a police report about a hate crime, were told, we can't do anything. We can't help you. The police didn't even take the report. Why would they not? You know, I really couldn't tell you. I think it's probably homophobia. I think it's probably transphobia. I think it's that there are some people that the police don't want to help. Do you think there's more homophobia and transphobia among police officers than the general public? I think that police officers, just like the military, like things to be nice and neat and orderly. Things should fit into neat little boxes. And LGBT people don't always conform to those boxes. You see this happening in schools, too. LGBT youth are much more likely to be referred to police for bad behavior in school, disruption, disobedience, or talking back to a teacher, or things that we wouldn't normally think of as crime. But youth are actually referred to the police for these things. And what we find is that LGBT youth, especially LGBT youth of color, are most often reported for these things. Thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thank you. Eli Costin is a professor of gender, sexuality, and women's studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. Coming up next, coming out or coming in as queer in the Middle East. Last year saw the publication of the new Global Encyclopedia of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, and Queer History. The University of Virginia's Hanadi Al-Saman coordinated the Middle East entries from pinkwashing to masculinity in Iranian cinema. I think it's important for us to know that the LGBT um, groups uh, 
is not a new um, uh, experience to the Middle East. Uh, they have existed from uh, time immemorial. What is the range of experiences in the Middle East? So the range of experiences is that we have uh, laws that would dictate death penalty in countries such as Saudi Arabia or Iran for LGBT members uh, to short imprisonment or harassment in places like Egypt, uh, Jordan. And then there are places that are accepted, kind of, such as Turkey or Lebanon. Is the gay culture relatively hidden in most Middle Eastern countries? Yes, they often operate uh, under the table. They are known to a select few. Um, most of the times, their families are aware of it. Uh, their intimate friends uh, are aware of it. But not necessarily uh, they are out in the open, nor do they want to be out in the open. Well, the penalty is so huge. Uh, yes, Sarah. The penalty is huge, but not just the legal penalty. I think the cost of loss of family connection uh, is important and something that uh, LGBT people cherish. There is a range of experiences where you may find families that are accepting and loving, but then there are families who are totally unaccepting. And then you would see, for example, a teen maybe coming out to his mom, but not to his dad. And so uh, in that sense, they are having a little bit of a support group by coming out to a select few, an intimate circle, but not to the whole world. Because coming out to the whole world really carries a lot of risk, not just legally, but also, as I said, in the loss of the familial ties. That is so important, not just to LGBT people, but to every uh, Middle Eastern or Arab citizen. There is in the Queer Encyclopedia an entry called Coming Out, Coming In in the Middle East, what is addressed there? Uh, so I'm calling it coming in because this coming in basically highlights the fact that they want to be embraced by their family. They want to still reside within the context of their family. So if you think of the closet as an image, it's not an oppressive uh, closet as we understand it in the Western sense. Rather, it's a loving or a sanctuary closet because it's still has the family members that understand you and care for you as a loving entity who can, again, you can come into their embrace. And I think it's really important for us to listen to what they want to tell us, listen to how they want to define their experience, as opposed to, you know, LGBT groups and, and NGOs from, from the West telling them what they need to do. Do LGBTQ leaders in the West and NGOs Lecture Middle Eastern gay people on coming out of the closet? That's a great question, Sarah. I think they do because they, uh, they have an understanding that you can only define your LGBT status in the coming out process. So oftentimes these NGOs have the uh, financial support, have the logistic and uh, like the know-how of how to gain visibility. And they condition this on you have to follow the path of what we are telling you. Sometimes this is to the detriment and at a great risk to Middle Eastern LGBTs. You could be jailed or killed. You could be jailed. You could be killed. For example, in ICE, during ISIS times, some LGBT members who were outed by forcefully by their family or friends uh, were punished greatly, were killed, thrown away from rooftops. And in this sense, the coming out process carries a great risk death. You also refer to something called double refugees, that people who flee ISIS or flee repressive regimes to have more freedom in their LGBTQ lifestyle in other countries are further discriminated against in spite of what they believed would be a safe haven. Yes. Yeah, so um, the LGBTs who became refugees in uh, Turkey they have to, to leave because they were threatened by being killed and sometimes by members of their own family, an older brother, a cousin, or even a father. 
And in that status, they are double refugees because A, they share the same refugee concerns and challenges just as any other refugee, but because of their sexual orientation, they are also being doubly targeted. Uh, Turkey has more lenient uh, laws towards LGBTs. However, some right-wing groups might actually harass them or kill them. So there is an interesting documentary uh, called Mr. Gay Syria, where one LGBT uh, Syrian man was asked to really participate in this Mr. Gay World competition. And in the process of making the documentary, he was outed to his family. He was married. He lost his wife. He lost his child, who had to go back to to Syria, to a region now that's under the bombing called Idlib. There's an interesting section in the movie where he said, I only did it because I thought this would highlight my chance of being moved to uh, Europe, me and my family. But now I'm just out and I don't have a visa. So you see the pressure sometimes that that international LGBT groups and NGOs uh, exercise over these people where they force them to come out, often to their detriment. So this also happens at a much smaller level where it doesn't carry that much of a risk, you know, of killing. Uh, So uh, there is this Lebanese LGBT woman who have come to New York. She's trying to find support from the American LGBT groups, a support group. And she's telling them, you know, I cannot come out to my family. And this American LGBT uh, guy telling her, well, so what? You know, the heck with your family. Who cares? It doesn't matter what they think. And she said, no, but that's so important to me. I cannot really risk abandoning my family because without them... I am cut off and I'm torn and I I need them in my life. So they have to maneuver and find a way, Sarah, of basically making their own life and then keeping their family at the same time because keeping both is such an important thing for them. And I think we need to listen to them. We need to hear their stories and listen to their experiences and what they need rather than us telling them what they should do. When LGBTQ people do leave the Middle East and land in a Western country or in a less oppressive Middle Eastern country like Lebanon or Turkey or Israel, are they sometimes disappointed with the trade-offs in their new lives? Um, They are disappointed because oftentimes they are not finding out that they're being embraced fully by the uh, counterparts, Western counterparts, from the basic dating apps where the people says, no Middle Easterners apply, no Arabs apply. And oftentimes we see in, in countries such as Israel that they are being used also in a pinkwashing practice. What is pinkwashing? So pinkwashing is where Israel claims itself as the gay mecca of the Middle East and by contrast calls Palestinian or Arab attitude towards LGBTs as backward in such a way that would make us forget the colonial practices towards the Palestinians by the Israeli uh, IDF groups. What about the entry in the encyclopedia called Masculinity in Iranian Cinema? What's that? That's a fascinating entry, uh, Sarah. And it goes, you know, it has the gamut range from the macho to the uh, hyper-masculine, but also some feminine examples, some cross-dressing. How could Iranian cinema illustrate cross-dressing in a country that has a death penalty for homosexuality? Well, in in, uh, most of the Middle East, especially in earlier times, women were not allowed. So oftentimes male actors dressed as women and they performed female roles. And in this sense, they got away with it. But, you know, the interesting part is that those uh, people, they found an avenue and an outlet for expressing those uh, double identities that they want to live in, right? Uh, so we have cross-dressers early on in the 1900, but and later on, even to this very day, we have performers, famous performers today in the Arab world, Lebanese and Egyptian and others, who are actually men, and everybody knows they're men, but they are very well known in their experiences as women, uh, women performers. And are they part of the trans community? They are part of the trans, and they are actually making headway to the public culture as performers. One is Bassem Fagali. He's Lebanese. Um, he's a very well-known performer. People come and they, you know, watch their shows and they listen to them. 
and people know they're trans, and it's starting to sort of change public attitudes. Yes, as long as it does not move away from this performative theater, then it is accepted, as maybe some people may take it as a comic relief, but, you know, at the very least, I see it as a glimmer of hope, a silver lining where there is a bit of an acceptance. What about the entry called Internet Queer Sites in the Middle East? What will we find there? So this is such a fascinating entry. You'll see a range of sites that Middle Eastern LGBTs are using to connect with each other. They connect with other queers within the Middle East, not just uh, the outside world. The Internet is a great place for that. People hide behind, again, the safety of the lack of visibility in, in behind the Internet sites. Connecting also with other causes. The more successful examples that Middle Eastern LGBT groups found is tagging their issues with other bigger issues of the national women's liberation, LGBT rights, uh, and human rights. So this group called Helem were successful in changing a Lebanese law that criminalizes homosexual activities by working with uh, lawyers under the umbrella of human rights. Thank you so much. Absolutely, Sarah. I think it's really important for us to heed Middle Eastern LGBT stories, to listen to them, and to let them define their experience, not us dictating our own experience on them. They will have to find that path. Hanadi Alsaman is a professor of Middle Eastern and South Asian languages and cultures at the University of Virginia. She coordinated the Middle East entries in the Global Encyclopedia of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, and Queer History. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aidan Carroll is our intern. Some of the music is by Blue Dot Sessions. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.